we should never live our lives in fear because if we're living our lives in fear, we're not living our best life. Hey, what's shaking? This is Rick Jordan, and welcome back to the All In Podcast. An amazing show today. I've got Joel Vettel with me. What's up, Joe? Hey, it's great to be here. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, come out and uh, listen to somebody from North Dakota. <laughs> North, dude, it's not like a, it's an issue with you being from North Dakota. You say it like there's this backstory of nothing good comes from there. I don't think that's the case, man. <laughs> No, actually, mm-hmm. just the opposite. We're, uh, mm-hmm. we're excited that uh, our part of the world right now, I think there's a lot of people looking at it and going, that might not be a bad place to live right now. So we're excited and we're hearing a lot of great comments about uh, just, you know, again, people living in a different uh, world than they did probably a year ago. And, yeah. Uh, and North Dakota right now, especially Fargo, uh, fastly uh, on the grow and uh, we're loving it. So that's awesome. So you say Fargo specifically. I mean, I know that's obviously one of the most known towns, thanks to the movie a few years back, of course. But, you know, that's uh, what else is there in North Dakota? I mean, let's dive in real quick here and see what, what you have to, to give us as far as what we could do if we decided to visit. And then we'll get well, into some nitty gritty of some stuff here. <laughs> well, first off, um, the movie, although it was an incredible movie, um, certainly it probably isn't a true reflection of what we do here in Fargo. And, and you know, we're very proud of the state that we're in, but more importantly, the people that are in it. And Fargo is an incredibly warm place, not by temperature, but by the, uh, the quality of the people that we have living here. We have a very high educational level uh, for our population. Um, we have an incredible uh, art and uh, vibrant uh, community that really supports the arts in our community. So we're very thankful for that. We have some incredible sports teams. Many people have heard of North Dakota State University's football team, which, uh, again, very proud to be, to be part of that. I'm an alumnus of North Dakota State University, wrestled for the Bison for for my uh, college career, which was quite a few years ago, but very proud of my uh, my alma mater being North Dakota State University and proud to be a Bison. And I think we just bring in uh, a number of universities, not just North Dakota State, but uh, two other uh, local community uh, or, uh, colleges, uh, that is Concordia and then the University of Minnesota at Moorhead. And combining all those three together, we have over 20,000 college students that live uh, just within our footprint right now, uh, which provides us an incredible workforce. Um, and so again, business has been going extremely well, even during the pandemic, we've uh, seen increase in certain industries. Uh, we have an incredible educational level, uh, not only through K through 12, but also in our uh, uh, moving into the college level. And then finally, uh, just again, that vibrant arts uh, community that really has uh, exploded uh, recently in Fargo. And, and we're just very proud of uh, the quality of life that we can provide to people coming in and uh, certainly those people that decide to stay. That's awesome. You know, even uh, for my industry, which is cybersecurity technology, there's a, a lot of things that some don't even realize about Fargo. I know Microsoft's largest data center exists in Fargo and, and around that area. And I know there's a lot of Microsoft people there. And so there's so many other things that you would not expect to be in some place like Fargo. And it's pretty fun because, I mean, it gets really cold there in the winter, of course. I'm from Chicago, and I know it's freezing here in the winter, but I know it's even worse in Fargo. You know, so and you think of maybe that's that's why it's a good place for a data center. I don't know, but there's a lot of other cool things from what I, I've heard. Anyways, I've never visited, but you know, I'm actually going there for the first time here in about a week, my first time there ever, and I'm pretty excited to see what's around town. But uh, when I was talking with with Ashley, who you know, she was saying that there's not even a Whole Foods in Fargo. I was like, where am I going to get my groceries from, or where going I get my snacks from? It's like, oh, we have a Natural Grocers, which is really cool because it's small business, right? And it's it, I'm sure it's owned by a family that's there and that's what excites me because i mean america's built on small businesses and it really ties into what's going on now with the pandemic it's great because we have to get our food from somewhere regardless but even there's around me you know sure we have whole foods in chicago we have mariano's which is another big natural grocer it's sort of like a hybrid but then we have other places that we shop like brookhaven marketplace or even a local farmer's market because it's awesome to see everyone we're, we're midwesterners same thing you know i'm like in a suburb that you go 10 miles 
south of the suburb and it's nothing but farmland. You know, to, and everyone thinks that Chicago is like half the stinking state too, which I'm sure might be the case for Fargo, right? You think of North Dakota, what else do you think of besides Fargo? Is Fargo like the whole eastern side of the state? No, it's not. You know, I, I love the, the talking about geography and things, but man, Fargo, there's a lot of stuff even in North Dakota as a whole. And let's dive into the nitty gritty because I'm looking at your bio here, and man, you've done some stuff. There's been a few things that you've <laughs> you've accomplished in your life and gone through, and I'm really intrigued to get into some of this, especially on the security side, because I've owned a private security agency, physical gu- guns and guards. I've also had uh, CIA training in surveillance and elicitation. I'm certified in those. And in addition to that, I really have a heart against human trafficking. I was at the White House a couple weeks ago talking with the administration about this from a cybersecurity perspective. And I have a movie that's being released that is all about the effects of people in relation to government overreach with the pandemic. And man, I I feel like without even knowing you, our hearts are going to connect on this. (laughs) And I'm really pumped to to dive into this conversation. So can you go a little bit in your background as far as law enforcement, wherever you feel like you want to start? Because I know now you're at Stanford Health, but this this is like you. This is who you are, man. Well, I, I think I always start with where I'm based at, and that's a uh, father of two daughters. And awesome. I think that's, that's uh, you know, as I tell people over and over, I, I my lovely wife and two great kids, um, I live with three women. And, uh, you know, I always said in college, it was gonna be, you know, if that was an experience I'd had, it's gonna be awesome. And it is, living with three women and, that I live with now, it is a completely different perspective than I ever thought I'd yeah. have in life. And they are incredible. Uh, they're a lot of fun. Uh, but I, you know, growing up, I was uh, one of uh, seven kids. Um, and my parents, uh, we grew up in a single wide trailer. And so nine of us in a single wide trailer, and you uh, start from that uh, beginning, that humble uh, uh, beginning. And I'll tell you, you learn the value of so many different things based on that experience. And you know, one of the things we're seeing more and more, and as you talk about, um, you know, especially human trafficking, how important um, some of those economic factors uh, play into who are victims of human trafficking and how those that are prying and and probing and trying to get involved with our children and with our young adults in a way that uh, to exploit them, utilizing uh, simply economics and trying to take people that are uh, the least of our brothers and sisters and take advantage of the situations they're in. And so, you know, leaving uh, a little farm in North Dakota going on to uh, have the opportunity and how I got to go to college was through wrestling scholarship and and that was an incredible experience for me uh, and it introduced me to the aspect of team and introduced me to the aspect of how I wanted to live my life and that is helping others and so through that lens I was able to go to law enforcement spent 20 years uh, in a variety of positions within law enforcement I got the experience of not only being part of um, an incredible Fargo Police Department but going on bigger uh, to be part of bigger teams uh, including some national boards and and um, a recent or I, I was a 2013 graduate of the FBI National Academy and that exposed me to some of the national organizations that are out there that help people and currently I'm a board member uh, for the FBI National Academy in our Northwest District and so I still serve on that committee even though I'm out of law enforcement still have that opportunity to work uh, almost daily with law enforcement across our region and then on top of that I've been part of some government uh, on our governor's committees. Uh, One that I served on for almost seven years uh, was I worked directly with uh, other board members to uh, identify sex offenders uh, within our communities and actually was uh, participated in the rating system to determine their risk level to our threat to our committee and did that for seven years. And and that was a labor of love and the fact that uh, I felt I was truly making a difference in identifying those that uh, were the highest uh, at uh, risk of offending and certainly identifying ways to help uh, prevent that, uh, those folks from taking advantage of our community and especially our youth in our community. So those that's kind of my background, um, but it all again starts with uh, how I was raised. And one thing I tell people over and over again, 
Uh, there's no crime in being poor. I was poor. Um, the crime is oftentimes the nucleus of that family and um, being, uh, you know, having or not having the support of people within that network uh, can make a difference on whether you're a victim of something as terrible as human trafficking or you are able to uh, move past that and become a really productive member of society through a variety of opportunities. So again, it all comes down to uh, the networking and the ability to be exposed uh, to great influences in your life. And so that's really where I start and uh, oftentimes where I am. Wow, there's a there was so much you packed into that two minutes there, man. That was that was pretty incredible. I uh, where do I even start with this? Because it, there's one thing that really grabbed me that you were talking about, and you were talking about the economics of human trafficking. And when I've talked about this, I've been on podcasts, you know, and as a guest and talking about really the the scare factor, right? Because as a parent myself, you know, I have two twins that are 13 years old, boy and a girl, then I have a, a younger son who's 10. And I've known ever since day zero when they were born that it's not really gender biased when it comes to trafficking and kids. You know, it, it can be either male or female, it doesn't matter. And which is kind of interesting to think about. When I've spoken about trafficking, it's all sort of like the scare factor and from cybersecurity from that perspective and say, you know, this is how kids get groomed online. And then I'll also go to the physical side because, you know, you talk about the dark web and uh, even though I have a movie coming out right now, Liberty Lockdown, I was in a f- another documentary, Cybercrime, and we're starting filming again for the, uh, for the sequel right now, which is called Uncovering the Dark Web. And when I was around a table of nine other cybersecurity experts, I was the only one that really understood the actual delivery and fulfillment of the goods, if that makes sense, because they were asking, hey, what kind of what kind of things can you buy on the dark web? You know, some were talking about credit cards, some were talking about social security numbers, and then one, one dude piped up and he said, oh, you know, it can also be, you know, human organs. And I looked up and I just got stone cold steel face, man. And I was looking at him and I said, do you have any idea where they where those organs come from, that it comes from kids. After they've run their usefulness of being trafficked, sometimes 10, 20 rapes a day, or customers, if you want to call it that, once they've run their usefulness, so they just run out of energy, meaning that it's almost like a product that has gone past its expiration date, that's when they harvest the organs, and then those are sold on the dark web. And then from another dark web perception, too, it's like, you know, the transaction takes place there. The dollars exchange hands, you know, or even on the regular internet, like Wayfair, as we know of recently, too, which is horrendous. With the transaction taking place on the dark web, but there still has to be physical delivery of the goods of the mm. product, so to speak. And I, I, I don't mean to sound so cold when I talk about that, but that's literally how these how these human beings are viewed. Yeah. And, I, and I think you hit it right on the head when you say that is the root of the problem. It's economics. It's uh, trafficking is cost effective. Um, it's taking the uh, low priced goods or services a demand that's there, um, and it becomes a profitable venture for them. I mean, we know just from from simple math that um, they can take a sex worker and earn over a thousand times what that person they have invested in that person, and uh, that leads to that recruiting, that coercion of low cost, basically labors or slave labor. Uh, to produce not only what we're talking from as far as a sex worker standpoint, but other goods and services. Um, And you mentioned earlier, again, the clothing, you know, all those things that they're producing uh, and offer services that are really very low in price um, and they can do high volumes of them. And when you're talking about simple economics and you break that down and understand that when they talk about profitability they're talking about human beings they're talking about taking a human being and utilizing their life to produce high profits on the backs of what we consider our friends our family our kids and they look at it from that standpoint and that's what's incredibly sad and probably more frustrating is that 
it is it is the root of the problem but yet it is so sad to think of it in that aspect but again economics plays such a huge role in how human trafficking is occurring in our world today wow before we get into the psychology behind this too because that's a, that's a big part of this and why it happens to begin with and why kids even stay in it because it, you, you think that some oh they have to be rescued and yeah there are some that have to be rescued i'm set up to go into the tunnels in vegas and rescue some kids at some point in time in the future here with a group and i'm excited about that because we're going to film everything for the the documentary i was talking about but beyond that though i've always thought man is if you can disrupt the money flow for something like this, you can actually really hit a dent, make mm-hmm. that gouge in whatever industry or, or whatever region this is. And I don't know how that might play out in North Dakota, you know, but I know that it's interesting to me because Super Bowl Sunday this year in Vegas, I use this as an example a lot. It was mm-hmm. something like 2,300 kids went missing just over Super Bowl weekend. And this was before the pandemic. You know, and only 100 and something kids were actually found with that, which is heartbreaking. And I, I think about this as like, well, shouldn't it have gotten better? Shouldn't ha- the, the less kids be missing and less kids be infused into this industry since the pandemic started? Because you think of tourism traffic with Super Super Bowl weekend and all the parties and everything else that goes on in Vegas, there was just more people around. But it's mm-hmm. interesting to me because it's been the opposite now that we've seen that there's been over, I think it was the LA Times projected as, as about 40 times greater the amount of trafficking activities that are taking place now, the amount of kids that are missing since the pandemic started. Why, mm-hmm. why do you think that is that has to be economically based? I think it, it's economic and it's also, let's face facts. Um, people that are participating in this in a level of where they're taking advantage of others see opportunity and where we see sometimes tragedy and sometimes festivity uh, they see opportunity and I think the perfect example is when uh, the hurricanes when we had Katrina and there was that influx of folks from a population in Louisiana that literally transferred about 250 to 300,000 people in a matter of days went from there up into Houston, Texas. Wow. And that's when you saw those horrific pictures of people taking over the Superdome and and it was unbelievable. Um, If you think about a quarter of a million people literally just going from one spot to another and having no homes, no no belongings, and showing up at that foot, uh, basically at the doorstep of Houston and saying, here we are, deal with us. You don't think that there was a huge amount of folks for a variety of reasons that saw that opportunity to say, okay, there are a number of kids and adults that have nothing. And here's my opportunity to take advantage of that and take that tragic event and turn it into a profit center for me. Um, And they did that. And we know that they did that. We know that they utilized that as an opportunity to do human trafficking. We know that they utilized that. We we know that a number of sex offenders, registered sex offenders, completely disappeared off the map during that tragedy. And that's just one event in our history. And you talk about all those other ones that occur each and every year where a great number of people are displaced or all of a sudden there's such a a huge event that we don't know where some of these most of our more sensitive and certainly what our most vulnerable folks go for relief and oftentimes they end up in the arms of those that are ready to take advantage of them and so just look at the sheer number of events that occur throughout our through a course of a year Um, Think about how many thousands of people are displaced or put into some level of of disruption in their lives. And these are the most vulnerable of folks to begin with. And then all of a sudden now they're missing. They're gone. And there's no way that we can take and track them. Wow. I've had some individuals contact me because I have – 
I, I have resources you know, to find certain things. And you know, one I remember was it was out of Phoenix, Arizona. And they said we're, we're here, we're so close to rescuing this this little girl. When they say little girl, I'm talking maybe 15 years old, somewhere around that age. And so we we had a, a Netflix account because you're talking about tracking them. Like we, mm-hmm. she signed in to their Netflix account. From you know, we got a notification on this. Is there any way you can track that down? You know, and Netflix has enough security on the account because it was their her parents' Netflix account, and she had already been in, inducted into the sex trafficking industry. This this girl, and they asked me, it's like, can you find this? Can you trace where this is from? I said, yeah, we can. I can get a GOIP, and then there was also a, a burner phone that she was using that she was given by her trafficker that she was using to call home because they're still attached to their family it's weird psychology on this too and it was strange to me because the Amongst other resources, the, the team that I was talking with and helping, they have uh, contacts at the FBI. They have U.S. Marshals that actually dive into the, the physical rescue activities when there, there's a solid lead. But in order to trace those numbers and find out what addresses were associated with those numbers, they wouldn't do that because they were actually, it was actually like crossing a line in some way or, or other, and they were afraid for their job, which was mind-boggling to me. It's like there's a kid right here. So they reached to me and, and said, hey, we, we met you at this event, you know, we hit it off and we're going to film with them for the documentary. Is there any way that you can help us get an address for this? Mm-hmm. And I said, I'll see what I can do. Three hours later, because I use sources back from the investigations that I've done, you know, not being within the law enforcement community, but having a, a private security agency, uh, it's like public database aggregators. It's crazy, man, because being in the cybersecurity world, I know this, that almost everything about you is out there regardless. <laughs> and there's, there's aggregators that are just database searches that I still maintain the the connections with, and I punch it in there, I was able to give them 27 different possible addresses that they were able to narrow down to three. And over the next 48 hours, this little girl was rescued. And it was mind boggling to me because this took almost no effort on my part. But yet the, and I'm not saying anything bad about the FBI or the US Marshals, man. It's just, there's limitations and laws and jurisdictions that come into place that there, there needs to be some kind of overhaul of the system that we have because we're talking about human beings and it, I was I was proud man I was teary-eyed when I got the phone call that said we got her <laughs> you know I, I was even right now, man, I'm thinking about that. I'm trying to hold it together. But thinking about that, it's like it was just a couple of minutes. And because I had the resources and the means to, I was able to dive into this and give someone the information they needed to save and rescue this girl within 48 hours. And there, there's nothing like that feeling, man, because it was similar when I saw my daughter being born. And I looked down at her and I'm thinking it was the first thing that it's like, oh, she's so pretty. And the second thought was, how do I protect her? Because I don't want her getting involved in anything that's going to mess with her mind, mess with her body. I don't want her taken advantage of. As a dad, it was like instinctual, man, just right there where I needed, like, you are mine. Even when you get married at some point, I'm walking you down the aisle. I'm always going to be there as a phone call. Even if you get involved in some bad things, if it's from a burner phone, I will find you and I will save you. And that's the same feeling I had with this little girl who was 15 that I never even met. And I feel across America, man, because there's a lot of there's a lot of visibility that's been brought to light recently with with current events, you know, especially with Epstein, with with Wayfair, with everything else that's going on with the pandemic that's accentuated this that I feel unless you have a mental malfunction, every American is behind this cause Mm -hmm. because it's human life. Yeah. And I, You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And I, I, you know, here's where I struggle with is, is, and you brought up some wonderful points. My biggest point is we need to do better. Um, and I, I say that from a, from a law enforcement standpoint, um, you know, one of the most difficult things that I always had to do and still is probably one of the most heart wrenching events that I've ever done in my life. And unfortunately had to do it uh, too many times is when I had to tell uh, a parent of a child, no matter what age, um, that their loved one was never coming home again. Hmm. 
And you know, one of the rules I had when I was in uh, a supervisor for law enforcement, no matter what level, is I would always do death notifications. Even if, um, if, I, had, if I had the opportunity to do that in person, I would do it before I would make one of my officers do that. And because it's heart wrenching, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, especially when it's ones that uh, are very sudden in nature. Um, and when I say sudden in nature, a tragic accident or homicide. And I can remember one particular incident it was a very high profile case in our community uh, with a college student that went missing uh, that ultimately um, was found to be uh, deceased and uh, it's an unsolved homicide at this point. And I can always remember being in the room uh, with his mother and father and having that, to be able to have to tell them we just found their son's body <laughs> and how tragic and unbelievably hard that is. And that brings me to my point is we need to do better because there was even within that case and its other cases are very, very consistent where the hands of law enforcement are tied, not because of anything that makes any sense. Um, it's tied because of bureaucratic red tape. Yeah. And we need to do better. Um, being in the private sector now, especially in healthcare, uh, we have our own rules and regulations we have to deal with. One thing that I've found that we have been able to do, at least locally here, is to do a better job of that communication between um, the uh, where private business is at and governmental entities. And that's the, probably the biggest factor is having a relationship with those organizations prior to a tragic event occurring. So when something terrible happens and you need somebody's help, it's no longer you just picking up a phone and talking to a stranger or finding somebody that, you know, in trying to trace down something, it's having a relationship that you've built, you've put chips in the bank. So when you need their help, uh, you can call them and say, you know what, we have a relationship and I need your help on the sly. And I'll, I'll tell you what, we've found that that has been probably more of a priceless asset than anything else is having that relationship where you can go to them before something tragic happens and when bad things eventually do happen, you're able to have that relationship already set. Man, that's beautiful. It's, it is so important because you hit the nose on the head and you were able to articulate what I couldn't in the moment because I was getting a bit emotional when I was talking about our federal law enforcement agencies like the marshals and the FBI. It is, a, it is bureaucratic red tape. And that's exactly why they couldn't pull up those addresses, do an address search for the, for this phone number was just because of the bureaucratic red tape. And it was frustrating as hell, man. You know, and th that's why they picked up the, like, we need to call Rick. And it's like, cool. I've got, I mean, it, it was so simple to run these searches and then they went back, but th this was the beautiful part, right? Because it wasn't just the, the private organization, the private tactical organization that went in and did the rescue. They still did it in conjunction with the FBI and the U S marshals to rescue this girl. So where the, they couldn't cross a bureaucratic line but they're still saying hey i'm all in because we need to go save this girl's life mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's it was so awesome it was almost like a dance so to speak and trying to figure out the ways to to just pierce this invisible translucent veil of getting the information that we need so that we can do more to find mm -hmm. more kids and to rescue them um, i'm interested in this because i know north dakota has actually a pretty booming sex trafficking industry. And why is that? Because you wouldn't think of that. And I started on this earlier. You would think Vegas, of course, you know, which it is. But then North Dakota, why North Dakota? You know, I think there's a number of reasons why uh, rural America is a perfect opportunity for these folks to take advantage of, again, situations where they can take and uh, not only find people that are willing to pay for these sex traffickers, um, but also opportunities to take and uh, take and put people in those situations. And, and so one of the things that we found, one, um, during our uh, oil boom uh, that we've had mm. uh, recently, uh, there was certainly a high level of one cash 
Um, people were making a tremendous amount of monies. Um, they were living in, in kind of obscurity because many times they were coming into our communities from elsewhere. And so there wasn't any ties or any connection to uh, the communities at all. And so they, again, often felt that they can be, uh, their anonymity was protected and they could do things they probably wouldn't do in their own neighborhoods. Um, and then I think the other part of it is, was um, there was just a number of folks that were here away from their families and uh, unfortunately said, you know what, I'm gonna make that terrible decision uh, to get online and, and live out of a sexual fantasy that I have. And so what we were seeing, uh, especially during our oil boom, was that people, um, especially the traffickers, were seeing a pool of basically clients that they could, they could take in and go after. So what they would do was they come out of the Chicago area and they would travel down the interstate and they would take the, the kids that they were trafficking or the people that they were trafficking and they would basically hit a circuit. And so they would start basically along the interstate and hit their first stop would be the Minneapolis area. They mm -hmm. go from Minneapolis, travel along the interstate to Fargo, North Dakota. So all of a sudden again, make a, a week long stop there advertise in such places as Backpage, uh, such sites that allowed them to basically uh, take and advertise what people were looking for, these these uh, these uh, people were looking for, and then you'd be there for a short period of time and then move on to their next, next destination, which is typically, again, down the interstate, go further into oil country, um, and then spend some time in oil country. So it was actually a circuit that they were traveling. That created a number of problems for law enforcement. When one, you're mobile, it's hard to set up those things when somebody's there for a very short period of time and then they're gone. And so they were taking advantage of that from a law enforcement standpoint. The other part that they really uh, saw as an opportunity, and again, it all comes back to economics, is they were able to make a, a large amount of cash in a, in a short period of time and basically then we would all of a sudden those girls or those young people were gone and wow. we lost we lost any talk any opportunity to track them so we've seen kind of the, uh, a continued um opportunity in two ways where we've seen trackers take advantage of north dakota and other rural communities one from that aspect of again uh customers but then also taking in the other part is we are a very trusting community and oftentimes our yeah. young people fall into a trap of um, they trust adults in a variety of ways. And so they're seeking that, uh, as all kids do, uh, they're seeking the opportunity to belong. And uh, when they utilize technology such, such as the internet to draw these kids in from a real community, uh, if again, they don't have that social network, um, they're again a trusting kid and all of a sudden uh, now we're missing a kid and they're being taken advantage of. So those are the two areas where we feel uh, Fargo or North Dakota specifically and other rural communities are being targeted. Um, but certainly there's other aspects to it too. Yeah, you're talking a lot about the psychology even behind how this happens too. And I, I'm sure there's a there's probably a role that family structure plays into this too, right? What, what, what do you see as far as the different family structures? Because it's all across the board in the country, but what kids in what types of structures are more likely to be trafficked? Well, I think you start with, with um, economics and again, do they target folks in a lower uh, tax bracket? You betcha they do. Um, and oftentimes because those kids are not as protected uh, for a number of reasons. Um, you look at uh, most of the time both parents are working, so they're not in the home. Um, oftentimes these kids are looking for opportunities to belong to something. And if they're poor, um, that leaves them uh, with a natural disadvantage uh, to protect themselves in those situations. I think the other parts to deal with is oftentimes they target single family homes. Right, single yeah. parent homes, yeah. and and uh, again, I always tell people I never blame victims, um, but I, I recognize that those those victims become more vulnerable because of the circumstances they are in, and how do we help them? 
and we take tragedy and try to make it into triumph. And how do you do that? You take and be very honest. And and let's face it, right now in our basically our um, whole environment right now is we're dealing with people that um, oftentimes are the least of our brothers because they're in a situation where they don't have a support network. Uh, they have one, maybe one parent who's struggling to just survive economically and have don't have time to really be able to uh, do the due diligence that they, they, they want to, to protect their children. So again, I think that plays a huge part of it. And I think it, it also comes down to, again, how that person feels. Um, we know that kids that are in single family homes struggle with identity. They struggle with the ability to um, self-worth. And, and that is incredibly hard because there's a lot of great single parents out there. Um, but again, they're just trying to keep their head above water. And they oftentimes, they struggle to find a time to really help build the self-esteem of a child that's right in front of them. And sure. so again, that's, those are just, uh, I, I don't think they're revolutionary, um, but I think they come back down to one and one thing only. It, it takes a village uh, to raise a kid. And I came from rural, very small town, North Dakota. And I hold uh, a lot of regard and a lot of respect and a lot of, I owe a lot of people. The, they took and helped me become the person I was and am because they cared. And I could have easily been the same kid that fell through the cracks. Um, my mom often told, told me she didn't know which side of the bars I was going to end up on. Uh, as a youth. Um, and I'm glad I ended up on the right side. But let's face facts, that, that's something it, that we often forget. There is a lot less community um, connection uh, right now in our country than ever before. And if we can try to put community back into our uh, America, uh, I think we're going to go a long ways in helping uh, decrease this issue as a whole, but more importantly, create the ability for these kids to help themselves and protect themselves. Wow, that's that's incredible. Uh, there's a, there's some things that you said there that you said you know this stuff isn't revolutionary, but I think about it, and it's sometimes it just takes someone to say it before it clicks and it could take someone to say it the seventh or eighth time before it clicks in the minds of whoever is listening and when you talk about the single family homes too and the tax brackets there's actually a, there's a correlation there too and again, this isn't revolutionary either because you're talking really about one income and if it, you know I think of single moms a lot but then there's also single dads you know or even w- widowers that, that happen from whatever scenarios and you're really talking about one income for, for the household you know and there's already been some kind of tragedy in the in the family split that's taken place, whether it be d- divorce, death, whatever. You know, I, I've been through that, man. I, my dad died when I was 16 years old, and I saw the struggle when my mom was only making eight dollars an hour. You know, and th- thank goodness there was some supplemental Social Security and life insurance paid off the house we were living in, so there were less expensive. But imagine that. I mean, three kids, you know, 16, 11, and 10, and here you are making eight dollars an hour, working 40 hours a week, and. I I think also because my cybersecurity hat goes on and back then you know this was 1995 when my dad passed and there wasn't iPads there wasn't iPhones there wasn't any kind of tablets or e-readers you know there was TV that that was really about it video games Nintendo Nintendo 64 you know I remember that but nowadays too because the single parent is just really so overwhelmed i saw my mom go through it man the single parent is so overwhelmed which was with things that were going on and i remember hearing her sobbing you know at night with behind the door closed when she would go to bed you know and i was 16 17 years old at this time and i was raising my brother and sister taking them to school in the morning because my mom was working you know nowadays fast forward to 2020 and what happens these days because when the parent the single parent is overwhelmed oh here's a tablet here's here's my phone do whatever you're it is you're going to do and then they find games like roblox which is a huge you know a huge grooming app for trafficking you know there's a lot of others that are out there too that kids play every single day you know and it's 
I try to educate my kids because I still think that's the best way in being a parent, just personal opinion, is educating your kids and telling them. Because my daughter started getting into Roblox, you know, maybe a year ago, two years ago when she was 11 or 12. And I just sat her down and said, hey, listen, this is what happens. You know, this is what, when you see these people pop up in the chats on these games and these other apps that you play, it's not really a friend or somebody who could be a friend that's 10 or 11 years old. This is some 50-year-old, 60-year-old dude that's starting to pretend to be your friend and saying, hey, let's go to Starbucks tomorrow. We are back after a fun technical glitch on a side note. When uh, when we take over a client's business for IT management and cybersecurity, a lot of times there's like this illusion of a magic wand. You know, And I'll always say that there is no magic wand because stuff's still going to happen, but it's about what we can prepare for. And there was always this, you know, like preventative mentality. And I guess this leads back to even trafficking, as we were talking about, too. There's this preventative mentality. It's like, hey, let's do everything we possibly can to stop something from happening. And then in my field, that's where most businesses tend to stop. You know, most firms send us out like we're going to try to prevent everything, and then they don't actually even focus anything on the response after the fact. You know, and you know, from law enforcement too, there's a lot that comes into play when it comes to a response. You can yeah. do everything you possibly can to try to stop something from happening to begin with, but something's still going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to prevent everything. Well, my mom always said it best. She said, uh, "We make plans and God laughs." Um, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And so uh, you know, and I, but it also always brings me up to to that point that uh, it it is the little things that uh, make a home a home, and yeah. I think that's with life, right? You talk about the little things that we do each and every day. Um, from a cyber security standpoint that is important. And I think that, you know, we get back to that same point with, with human trafficking. What can we do um, as, as parents, um, as people that love others uh, in a way that um, we want to keep them safe? And it truly is. It's the little things that we do each and every day. I yeah. had the opportunity to teach personal safety um, for almost 20 years. Um, dating back to a, a tragic event that occurred um, back in the 90s when I was first in law, uh, started in law enforcement, we lost a college student uh, in a neighboring community called mm. Grand Forks, North Dakota. Mm. Ultimately, uh, it was determined she was uh, she was abducted and uh, then raped and killed uh, by a sexual predator. And from that tragic event. Um, my boss at the time said, we don't have enough information out there for our communities on how to keep people safe. And so I dug deep um, and did a lot of different, uh, um, you know, researched a lot of different topics on the area and finally came up with a program that we felt was worth presenting. And I ended up presenting it hundreds and thousands of times throughout our community over 20 years. And, and one of the things that I always come back to um, when it comes to personal safety, when it comes to safety in general, it's the little things that make a huge difference. Everybody's looking for whether it's uh, in in the fighting aspect. Everybody's looking for that touch of death, right? Yeah, yeah. It's going to stop the perpetrator. Uh, everybody's looking for that silver bullet. And as you know, uh, with all of this stuff, there is no silver bullet. It comes down to preparing through education our young people on how to be. Uh, strong on how to be focused and recognize when there's times that you're not safe because I also tell people it's very important we should never live our lives in fear because if we're living our lives in fear we're not living our best life but what we do is we take in and recognize times that we're less safe and whether it's it's being more focused during those times when we're less safe or at least acknowledging that we have to take further steps to keep ourselves safe, that's the most important message. And so like I, I, I'm a firm believer on, I teach my children this each and every day, is that you live life to the fullest and you don't take um, anything for granted. And how do you do that? And how do you live in a way that even through this pandemic, uh, it's not about throwing your hands up and saying, I can't do this anymore. It's about living your best life through a consistent message is that, you know, I love serving others and that's what I enjoy doing. So that's what I'm going to continue to do. Um, And with my children, sometimes I I have to remind them that 
the problems they have today are very first world. Um, yes. And yeah. they live in a very blessed place in the fact that they get to live their life in a way that's um, safe, um, but more importantly, fulfilling. That's perfect. I think in a nutshell, too, you just encapsulated really what the response by everyone should have been to the pandemic. I mean, we're talking about trafficking, but it's the same scenario. Don't live in fear. And even with the president getting out of the uh, getting out of the the hospital just yesterday, right? And he, he, that was his tweet. You know, he tweets a lot of dumb stuff. I'll say that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but but this one, when I saw this, and it, you know, that's one thing. I, I mean, I've always said that the dude's an incredible businessman, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if he would just keep his mouth shut a little bit more, he might have some more people that would like him. You know, yeah. it's a, no one can, can deny that. Whether you yeah. like him or not, the dude still has a mouth. But when, mm-hmm. when he tweeted this, he it was, you know, I'm out, I'm back and saying, don't fear COVID. That yeah. was, uh, I mean, just those three words. But then mm-hmm. at the same time, it, you know, it's still, it, it's missing what you're saying because I've never been afraid of it. You know, and mm-hmm. I've probably had it already because I was traveling so much during the, this time mm-hmm. period. Even uh, I have a regular driver that's in Vegas right now because I'm there so much. He, uh, met him just by happenstance as an uber black and then he's now i just call him up it's fantastic but uh, it's great he even stops at costco and buys me water before i get before i land it's amazing yeah, but but he said the last time i was there he's like i got the antibody test a couple weeks ago and my antibodies were through the roof it was the highest possible level and i never felt the thing you know but we do have the other end of the spectrum of everyone that you know there's people that are literally dying mm-hmm. just like trafficking it's like the don't fear what could possibly happen because as long as you're prepared you're going to be able to respond the most effective way possible to whatever can come up because if there is no preparation which a lot of the preparation is education that's yep. always the case that's in cybersecurity that's in human trafficking that's in healthcare right mm-hmm. you know when i dropped 80 pounds nobody taught me except the stupid government food pyramid that means crap uh, on what proper nutrition actually is and that's how I dropped the 80 pounds was because I educated myself and I know now what to do so that I can control my health for the remainder of the 60 years that I'm going to be on this planet. That's right. I'm 40. I said 60 years. I'm going to be 100. I was telling you, be three digits and I'm good. I made it at that point. Yes. <laughs> so on that note, with everything that's going on, I think, I think we're at a good place, man, because there's so much that we could get into with everything you've done, but I don't know. I, I wish there was a great way to like end on an up note because we've hit some really deep stuff dur- during this episode. And it's things that nobody really ever talks about, which is a sad thing, too. And th- that's the education piece. Yeah. Well, I, I always kiddingly tell my daughters, you know, we, again, they're, they're teenagers now. So but for years, uh, one of the things I always challenge them is that uh, no matter what point in your life, you should continue to educate yourself yeah. and learn new tasks and learn new things. And so, you know, during their youth, they probably thought I was crazy, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of took and, and I taught them things like um, how to shoot a gun, yeah, uh, how to shoot a bow and arrow, um, how to take and, and skate. All those life skills that I think are extremely important, swimming. And they often thought, why are we doing this? And I kiddingly once told them, I said, I, I'm doing this so if the Hunger Games appears, you're able to survive. <laughs> and, uh, That's been one of the, the one of the references this year in 2022 is that it's almost like real life Hunger Games, right? I've also heard, you know, there was something, some, you know, archeological dig found like a crystal dagger the other day or something like that. And they said, this is just in case, you know, at the end of 20. 2020 when the White Walkers come, <laughs> coming back to Game go. of Thrones. I know, but that—that's it. We never thought we'd see something like this, oh. you know. And I remember standing in San Francisco, and it was very apocalyptic back in May when I started filming. Everything boarded up, nobody on the streets. I was expecting zombies, zombies to start walking out, yep. you know. And I, I mean, like that was the the legit feeling that I had because I never thought I would see something like this. Well, and I think this this gives people an opportunity to talk about resilience. And that's something I've always been a firm believer in. Sometimes it's just taking that next step. Yeah. And yeah. and sometimes it's just about keeping moving forward. And that's that's where I'm you know, really have the opportunity to talk to with my kids a lot about is that resiliency right now is is the key because 
you could easily become frustrated with what's going on. Uh, you know, my kids currently right now are not in school. Uh, the schools have made the decision to close down temporarily um, during this thing. And that's extremely traumatic to them. Yeah, but yeah. I tell them the important thing is that you wake up in the morning, you've got to get up, you've got to continue to do your daily routines, you've got to continue to move forward. And it always comes back to a story that I tell them often. I, I did a, I did a, snow, a 50 kilometer snow race one time and 100 people starts this race. A lot of people dropped off very early. It was 11 degrees below zero when we started the race. Um, 50 kilometers is a long ways. And one of the things I found is we dark starts to hit. I'm still out on the course. Uh, I'm watching and listening as the coyotes are literally circling, waiting for me to drop. Um, and I'm wow. thinking, okay, this is all about one foot in front of the other. And that's what I focused in on is one foot in front of the other. And sometimes that's all it takes is in your mind, if you can say, you know what, I just gotta keep moving forward. And these are the opportunities through whether it's the pandemic, uh, whether it's because of some of the social unrest that's occurring today, we need to take and teach people that, you know what, resilience is a key to life and finding your point of happiness uh, you don't deserve to be happy. There's nobody that gave you the right to say, I deserve to be happy. It's on you to make yourself happy and to make the people around you that are important to you happy. And, and that's the ability that we have through resiliency to move forward and do those great things. And, and like I said, I told you earlier on, one of the things that makes me happy is serving others. Yeah, yeah. And there's no better time than right now than to serve your fellow person. And I think I, I get an incredible amount of satisfaction from that. I'm hoping I'm instilling my children on into that aspect so that when we talk about what did we do during the pandemic, what did we do during 2020, we aren't talking about the negativity. We're talking about the positive effects that we were able to have because of the positions that we hold and the positions that we are in right now today. And so take that what it is, uh, the positive is, we have opportunities and this 2020 has brought a lot of opportunities that's awesome man thank you that's a perfect way to end this thanks for being on joel you're amazing man yeah we didn't talk about your your arms on air so we'll we'll end it with this right because you talked about wrestling at the very beginning like that's why the arms okay now (laughs) when we framed you up i'm like hey this dude works out still that's that's awesome sweet I, uh, one of the great things I get an opportunity to do is I help with our uh, youth uh, weightlifting program here in, in Fargo and, and my actually my children's high school. And uh, I'm truly blessed because as I tell people, I'm almost 50, I'll turn 50 here at the end of the year. And uh, I always tell people if I can take and be able to lift with the kids, that keeps me young. And so it's a blessing in disguise. <laughs> right on. And then they're looking at you like, how's this guy doing this? I mean, I get the same looks. I mean, I don't, I don't think I look 40, you know, which is good. <laughs> I had somebody the other day tell me I look like a solid 34 and I'll just take that and I'll <laughs> run with it. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Awesome. Joel, thanks, my man. Thank you All so right. much. My pleasure. Take care. Hey, thanks for going all in with me today. Subscribe to the show so you get the new episodes when they come out. Rate and review the show if you're listening on iTunes. Follow me on social media at Mr. Rick Jordan. As always, you can find links and references to anything we've talked about in this episode in the show notes. And finally, share this episode with someone who you think might be able to level up their life by listening. I am Rick Jordan and I approve this message.